Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. This season on SageCast, we're talking with a variety of Pomona College faculty members about how they came to study what they study, teach what they teach, and love the field they love. Today, we're talking with Professor of Neuroscience and Psychology, Nicole Weeks, whose research explores the psychological and biological responses to stress. Welcome, Nicole. Well, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. Um, Let's start with your academic in ha- uh, interest in how the brain works. Yes. Uh, can you trace that interest back to its origins? I sure can. I sure can. So um, as early as I can remember, I had an interest in psychology. I really was interested in how the mind worked and how, why it was that people could experience what seemed like similar things but react to those similar things in very different ways. Mm-hmm. So I always had that curiosity. What makes you me and, and, um, and yeah, what makes you you and what makes me me? Um, and wanting to understand that. So that had all always been there. Um, And when I decided to go away to college, and I specifically decided to get as far away from California, so I'm a California girl, but I wanted to get as far away as possible. Um, And so got my map out and started looking at the East Coast, wound up in Boston and at Boston University, and was a psych major at Boston University. And so I knew that whatever I was going to do, it was going to be in psychology, mm-hmm. and it was, it was going to be related to trying to understand the mind. And what happened sort of curiously was there was one, what I think of as sort of natural science, hard science course that you have to take in the psychology major, and that was called at the time physiological psychology. But today we would call that neuropsychology. And so it was the one course I didn't want to take. I thought, I've never enjoyed biology and physiology and chemistry and physics. And so, gosh, I'm going to put that off as long as I possibly can. That's the truth. (laughs) And what that wound up meaning is that I took it my junior year. And I remember the course. I remember the first day of the course. And I remember the professor, Professor Jackie Lederman, I still am in contact with her, saying to me, or saying to us, Forget everything you ever learned about the id, the ego, or the superego. If it does not exist because of firing of neurons in the brain, it simply does not exist. And that was the day. That was the day when I thought, oh, my gosh, like there may be something to the sciences, the biology and the chemistry and the physics that I didn't realize. Mm -hmm. And if it's really the case that that, right, that those systems can help me understand the mind can understand the way in which people think and feel and react, that's what I want to study. And so that was real. It was my junior year at Boston University back in the 80s. um, And that's what turned me on to the field. And I've been in it since 1986, something like that. So you started in that area. You wanted to study the id, the ego. How did you? Yes. So that's so funny. (laughs) Yes. So this sounds weird now, but when, when I went to... But Boston, it really was with the idea that I would be a psychotherapist at the end of that, right? So it wasn't just studying psychology. When I first went to college, it was to study psychology to be a psychotherapist. So you wanted to be a clinician. You didn't yes. want to teach. Oh, you absolutely. Didn't want to, yeah. That's exactly right. I wanted to be a clinician. And even more so, it would sound strange to people, I really was a believer in Freud. And what I often say is like, not that penis envy stuff. Did you get that? <laughs> penis envy. Um, <laughs> so it wasn't the penis envy that I was so interested in. It was the idea of the unconscious, mm-hmm. that there were all these motivations that we had, and we weren't even aware that we had 
them, right. but they seem to be responsible for much of our behavior. So I was really interested, yes, in doing clinical work, and yes, trying to understand, again, the motivations for the ways in which we behave and the mm-hmm. ways in which we think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in some ways, I wound up pursuing that, but from a very different perspective than I expected. So... Um you started off, you said you didn't didn't feel good, like you were very good in chemistry. Or, That's right. So were you trying to avoid the STEM fields? Uh, there's no question I was. <laughs> there's no question I was. I think it was a combination. I think um, in some ways the positive was it wasn't just avoiding the STEM, STEM fields. I really fell in love with the idea and trying to understand psychological functioning. So it wasn't mm-hmm. all aversion. It was, it was definitely, I remember in high school, that the books that I would read on my own or the topics that would come up in any class. It could be a class on poetry. It could be a class on that was trying to understand motivations, love, hate, what have you, right? So mm-hmm. it was that those topics, those questions appealed to me. And also the idea that I was not, I did not think I was particularly good. I did not think I was particularly competent in the sciences as I defined them at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it was both of those. I was attracted to a particular set of questions, and I didn't understand that the fields that I was avoiding at the time might actually be the best ways of pursuing the questions that I was interested in until I got to college. And how did that experience inform how you work with your students now? Yeah. Oh, your- yeah, I really I really <laughs> like that question. Thank you. So, so I do feel I feel like um, even though I had a, a great um, education in a lot of ways K through 12, but what I realize and now I look back and I think really informs the way in which I teach is they didn't, the, the, I don't think the teachers felt it was their job to excite me and bring me into the field mm-hmm. and, and, and convince me, right, that um, what they were studying was important and fabulous and interesting and things like that. I didn't get any of that until I got to college. And then it now becomes critical to me. So since I've been here, I feel like it's my job, right? I feel responsible for trying to convince every student, right, that this is this is what you should be studying. Right. This is what's exciting. And 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 really pulling them in, if not to become majors and have careers in neuropsychology, at least to understand what it can offer them and the different perspectives it can bring together. So I take that very seriously mm-hmm. in terms of my own experiences in, in college and yeah. um, even before that and sort of what it means about the way in which I teach, definitely. So you were originally from this area. You went yes, east right. for college. That's right. You came home. I surely did. Do you consider yourself an Angelino? And if I, so, how's that tied into your academic journey? Oh, that's interesting. Um, yes. Yeah, I definitely consider myself an Angelino. It's, it's funny, the way I think about it now, I never, when I think about the time I spent in Boston, and we were talking about this before, if you think about the weather here mm-hmm. recently, um, I, it was a great place to get educated. It never felt like home. I never, it never took the place of um, sunny California for me. Um, And so I always thought of myself when I was there. In fact, I remember when people would tell me to go west when I was in Boston, and I would always be looking for the ocean because I thought that's how I'll know I'm going west. And so I'd always wind up going exactly in the wrong direction when I was there. So so I've, I've always been an Angelino. I think now the way in which I think about that is um, there's a set of values 
and I'm, I'm very keenly aware now of the ways in which the ways I think and the ways in which I try not to sort of be, um, um, to be con- conservative, and I don't mean politically here, but I mean it conservative in terms of these sort of old-time beliefs that have been with us since the 1600s type, type <laughs> thing, that I think there is an Angelino feel of sort of the new, the the flexible, um, the Just creative, openness. the openness, yeah. right? That, that very much, I think it took me getting away from Los Angeles to realize how much Los Angeles is a part of the way in which I I live and I, I do my work. Absolutely. Let's move on a little bit more to, to your research. Sure. You focus on the connection of the psychological and yep. biological yep. ways stress affect us. Why is it important to study that connection? Oh, wow. I, you know, I, I know this is a stereotype, and, and um, I so I don't necessarily want to to increase that belief, but there is no question I got into the field of stress Mm -hmm. because of my own experiences with stress. So I often tell my students, um, one of the things I always remember, and again, remember I was born and raised and lived here. My family was here throughout. And when I was in school in Boston, I remember I would be really stressed out. I would get through the stress. I would get those exams done. I'd get on the plane, and I almost never made it home before my throat started to scratch just a little bit, mm-hmm. and I started to feel exhausted. Mm-hmm. And I right, so I'm always interested in what is that? What is the connection, right, between mm-hmm. the fact that I would go through these periods of high levels of stress, and almost immediately. I would experience um, a cold or flu Mm -hmm. as a result. Mm -hmm. I would also say I was also really interested in the idea that, and yet isn't it interesting that my body, that my brain would allow me to get through the stressor, right? So that there was something really interesting about the way in which your body and your mind and your brain deal with these events in life that if you're lucky, Right. You You still persevere. Mm -hmm. Right. You still get through. But then you also experience the downside, the cost of that. Right. And so I think, you know, certainly from college and my own sort of experiences of pressure and and, you know, wanting to do my best and all of that, I've always had that sense of what is that relationship? What is that about? Mm -hmm. And then as I got more interested in neuroscience, then it really became interesting to me to think about how are things that we think of as psychological, like psychological stress, how are they actually experienced biologically? Or how are they actually experienced in the brain and in the body? And so in some ways, that seemed like a a natural place to go with trying to understand my own experiences, but also moving from someone who was most interested in the mind, if you will, Mm -hmm. and psychology, Mm -hmm. to someone who was more and more increasingly interested in understanding the connection between the mind and the brain and the physical body. So before we move on to yeah. your specific research, sure. Uh, sure. let's talk a little more about that connection. Yeah. Can you can you um, walk us through how that actually works? Sure, absolutely. So, so um, there are a number of different models. So it's also important as I do my work and as I think about the literature, um, a couple things that I think about in terms of sort of psychological experiences of stress and biological experiences both of stress but also health, for example, changes in immune system, things like that. 
one thing I always like to make sure I make clear is that there are a number of reasons why when we are stressed out, we wind up more likely, more vulnerable to getting sick, right? Some of them have to do with direct biological models. So, Mark, I would answer your question from the biological perspective, which is that when an individual experiences stress, you tend to have two major responses. Mm -hmm. So let's say it's a life or death event. And we're our bodies are not very good at telling the difference. <laughs> that happens every day. Right, exactly. Right? <laughs> so our bodies are not really good about telling the difference between a life or death event and like running into your boss on the elevator. I'm well, sure your is boss is beautiful and is mine, but you still feel a little bit of stress <laughs> over there. Right? So in for both of those cases, your body, your brain gears you up for action. Like this is fight or flight. I got to do something about this, right? <laughs> and when you experience that stress, right? When you experience fight or flight, all kinds of changes happen to your body, right? So you get an increase in blood flow, right? That's because your cardiovascular system, your heart is, is beating faster, right? You get an increase in respiration. So that's because your lungs are bringing in more oxygenated blood that can get mixed with the greater volume of blood that can get shunted to your muscles, all that kind of thing. So the body is gearing you up to protect you, right? Because you have triggered the idea that there is something really really wrong in your environment, whether there really is or not, right? Yeah. So the body goes through all of these changes, these biological changes, right, that are there for a reason. They're there to keep you alive. But in the long run, you can imagine if you respond, as, as we do to some extent, as though there's a bear chasing you every time you happen to hit a deadline, <laughs> right? Over time, mm -hmm. that is not the best response for your cardiovascular in system. In nature, a bear doesn't chase you every day. No, it's interesting. But, right, but, but to that point that even in nature, a bear, bear doesn't chase you. It's a bear of a deadline. Thank you yep. very much. Nicely said. And more than that, the amazing thing about being these brilliant humans that we are is it's not just about the bear. It's all of the ways in which you can anticipate a bear. And the bear may never come. Even if there was once a bear in your life, that bear is likely never to show up again. Mm -hmm. And yet, one of the things about having these very complex brains is that we can anticipate the bear. There's a great book by a uh, uh, stress physiologist up at Stanford, um, Robert Sapolsky, called Why Zebras Never Get Ulcers. And the whole idea is that a zebra does not have a brain that is complicated to worry about lions all the time. There's either the threat in front of them or there's no threat at all. Yeah. But this exquisitely complex brain of ours, right, that biology mm -hmm. of how does this work, allows us to have the anticipation of a bear, a lion, a deadline, a life or death event at any moment. And because of that, we wind up sort of gearing ourselves up gearing our bodies up in ways that can easily tear the body down in the long run. And yeah. that's the idea of sort of the biological model. You're gearing your body up for action. And if you really had a life or death event, that would be a good thing to do. But that's not what most of us are handling in our in our quite, right, first yeah. world problem life. What we're handling is stressors um, that really do not need to be responded to in the way that we still respond to them. And it's interesting that, I mean, we, all, we always think 
you know, cognition, brain, mind, but exactly. it's the whole body to exactly. some degree, right? Exactly, exactly. And, and the brain, there is no question that the brain is the ruler, mm-hmm. right, is the master of the body, right, mm-hmm. the rest of the body. Yeah. And you can think about all of the ways in which that's beautiful and complicated and interesting, um, but you can also then imagine if your mind tells you, if your mind, your brain tells you that something is so, you make it so in your body. Mm-hmm. And that, right, is one of the things that winds us, winds mm-hmm. up, right, putting us into some of the troubles that we wind up with. And I think that's fabulously interesting. And let's stay on stress. Let's stay, oh, let's stay stressed. Oh, okay, let's do it. I'm ready for it, Patty. <laughs> um, another area that stress affects is our memory. Absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about your work uh, in yes, that area? Yes, absolutely. And actually, this is one of my favorite parts of our work. And the reason for that is in some ways it's the most complicated, but should be obvious from our own experiences. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that, and I think this is especially true for our students, a lot of times when people think about stress, they automatically think about it as a negative experience and you expect it to have a negative impact. But what's actually the case is that the only way, let me take this to our students, the only way that students make it to Pomona College is because they manage stress well. Mm. Or let me put it maybe a different way because I'm not quite sure that was the accurate way to say it. They are able to perform well, especially on memory tasks, right? Much of what we are required to do, even under high levels of stress. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I find most interesting, and when we got these findings, we sort of had to look back and think, well, that actually was one psychological finding that was obvious. And that is, right, that when we take our students, Claremont College students, and we look at them under stress, and what I mean when I say look at them under stress, what we actually did is to bring students in during a time of low stress. So in our case, we actually chose students who were around over the summer, and we asked them, you know, how stressed are you feeling right now? And then we asked them to come in again, the most stressful week of the school year. You got it, finals or midterms, (laughs) right? And we tested them again. And we looked at their memory, we looked at brain activity through EEG, we looked at cortisol levels or stress hormone levels through salivary sampling. So we had all these different measures of the same individuals over two periods of time. Mm -hmm. What we found that I thought was so interesting was with regard to memory, our students' memory functioning actually got better when they were under stress, right? And again, it kind of makes Mm -hmm. sense when you think about it because what we have is a population, right, at our college that- that, high uh, achieving. Exactly, high Mm -hmm. achieving and highly capable, Mm -hmm. even under relatively stressful circumstances. So on some level, right, when we look back at the literature and we really thought about it, right, we might not get that same finding if we just went out to the general population, Mm -hmm. but we've self-selected for Mm -hmm. students who actually manage stress well, if by managing stress well, you mean are able to perform with regard to memory tasks in a, in a positive way. But what's also interesting is the other finding that we got that went along with that is even while students were performing well on the memory task, they're immune functioning. So one of the things you can get from salivary sampling is not only things like stress hormones, but you can also get some immune markers that are related to colds and flus. Mm -hmm. So the same student, right, when they were doing well on memory tasks, 
was actually decreased in terms of their immune functioning. And so this is another piece I've gotten really interested in, is what it means to be successful under stress depends on the stress you're talking about, but it also depends on how you define successful. And so it is. it very much seems to be the case that the conditions that we put ourselves in that actually may be beneficial to some types of functions, that same level of stress, right, in that individual may be actually problematic still with regard to other aspects of success, right? If you think about sort of your ability to fight off a cold or flu mm -hmm. versus your ability to perform well on an exam. And that, I think, is really interesting in terms of, of complicating, right, complicating how we think about stress and how we think about the outcomes of stress. Are they negative? Are they positive? It depends on what you're measuring. I'm, I'm curious. Mm -hmm. There are different kinds of memory. Uh, Absolutely. Right? And Absolutely. Uh, are they all affected in the same way by yes. stress? That's a, thank you. That's also a really good question. Um, where we found stress to actually be beneficial, at least the stress that is related to examinations, right? So how stressed our students tend to get during exam weeks, um, was that their, it was actually their short-term memory. So we would ask a question like what's called digit span. We'd ask a question like, repeat after me, I'm going to read you four numbers. I want you to tell me those numbers. And then the more difficult aspect of that is, and then repeat those numbers backwards, which mm -hmm. is something I pretty well can't do. <laughs> it was actually that task. I'm going to give you a series of numbers. And they would start with like three numbers and go up to eight numbers, right? Oh. And then you'd have to repeat them backwards. It was yeah. that task that students, our participants in these studies, our, right, our own examinations, right? It was that task that they had the most difficulty with until they were stressed, right? So at baseline, I would say, when they were lower stress, that task was actually harder for them than when they were under examination stress. And it's uh -huh. as if something sort of um, an, an extra resource of, of activity in the brain, activity in memory centers of the brain, was able to sort of catch them and, and, and allow them better memory. Um, whereas when we gave them lists of, of words, for example, and asked them to repeat them the following day, or there are all sorts of ways to do that, um, that sort of longer term memory, longer term in quotes, um, wasn't so affected. So it mm -hmm. does seem to be the case that not only does it matter if you're talking about cognitive ability or um, immune functioning or cardiovascular functioning, but also even when you say memory, it depends on the, kind, the specific kind of memory that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. yeah. You also studied the ways that stress affects individuals and Absolutely. groups and, and Absolutely. also gender. Can you walk Absolutely. us a little bit through that? Sure. So, so this is another finding that may or may not be surprising, um, but I'll say two ways in which. So I'm going to use as my group gender, mm -hmm. uh, exactly as you suggested at the end, Patty, and just talk about two kinds of studies we've done on that. Um, one sort of study is looking at different measures of stress. So when someone says stress, you remember I was saying it depends on how you define stress. Um, you can think of stress and measure stress psychologically. I can simply ask you, and as we do, um, on an inventory, how stressed do you feel? How anxious do you feel? How tired do you feel? How overloaded do you feel? I could ask you questions like that. And we would talk about those questions as your perception of stress. Mm -hmm. I could also ask you, how many times have you experienced X financial issues, health issues, examination issues in the last 
X period of time. We would talk about that about that as exposure to stressors. So you can have your perception of stress, you can have stressors, and then you can have physiological measures of stress, like your heart rate, cardiovascular system measures, and as I talked about before, things like cortisol. So all of those people sometimes talk about as measures of stress. That's a long way around, but here's the point. Mm -hmm. There are significant gender differences in the extent to which those different measures of stress map onto each other or are consistent. And this is the part that may not be surprising when I say it, but, but is really more interesting than I think people realize. For women, those four measures of stress map pretty neatly. So I could ask you, how stressed are you feeling? Or I could take your cortisol level. And I would be likely, if you were someone who said you were psychologically rather stressed, rather anxious, felt put upon, you're also likely to have these um, cardiovascular and immune and hormone measures of stress that match that. So mm -hmm. if you're someone who says you're stressed, just about every measure would be in line with that if you're a woman. If you're a male, if you're a man, those do not map up in the same way or map together in the same way. So if I ask about your stress level and I measure it through you telling me whether or not you feel stressed versus I use what we think of as a more objective or biological measure, <laughs> you might be someone who says, I'm not feeling stressed at all. And you're really stressed. And yet your physiological measures <laughs> would suggest that that may not be, I don't want to say accurate because that puts sort of a value judgment on it, but let me instead <laughs> say they don't match up. And yeah. so there really becomes this question. It's sort of an, um, a reminder, an alert be very careful about the way in which you ask your questions, depending mm -hmm. on the group of individuals that you are evaluating. And do not assume that every group of individuals is going to show similar relationships mm -hmm. between their different stress measures. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm really interested again in, hmm, one, why is it the case? One could have all kinds of hypotheses mm -hmm. that those things would map up in one gender and not the other. But it's also an interesting question of, um, or a cautionary tale mm -hmm. when you're doing stress studies to be very careful. You could imagine that happening culturally as well. You could imagine in one culture a mapping of the different measures of stress, whereas in another culture you may not get that same mapping. So being very careful about the way in which we define stress and then also the way in which we measure stress. So that's just one example using gender that we found. Let's stay on gender differences sure, for a minute. Sure. I, a former president of Harvard got into uh -huh. some rather deep trouble uh -huh. a few years ago for yes. speculating publicly that yes. uh, women might not innately be yes. as good at math and science yes. as, as men. Yes. Um, are there differences between men's and women's cognitive abilities, and is there any evidence that they're innate? Yes, thank you. I'm glad that you asked both of those questions, because the first one, I think, is an easy yes. That is, there's pretty good and pretty consistent evidence, although the differences are far smaller than I think people make them out to be. But there is absolutely evidence to suggest, on average, 
um, men, and here I do mean biological men, but we can talk about that, right? Yeah, men tend to be better at 3D visual rotation. The ability to imagine, think of any object in space, in 3D space, the ability to close one's eyes and visually rotate that object in your mind. And then if I said, if you did X rotation, what would that object look like, if that makes sense? Mm -hmm. um, men tend to be better at that kind of 3D visual rotation than women tend to be. So again, remember, this is average. Right. Whereas statistically correct, thank you. <laughs> Whereas women tend to be better on verbal memory tasks, the ability to remember um, um, long verbal right uh, stimuli, um, and also to be able to manipulate it and put it together and put combinations of verbal stimuli together into sentences and then change the sentence to change um, the meaning of it, things like that. So on average, you see those differences between men and women. I will even suggest, although it's not clear what that sex difference in cognitive functioning has to do with a second sex difference, and that is, it is also the case, um, on average, that male and female, or men and women, if you look at their brains, right, you see different complexities in men's brains and women's brains. And I won't go into all the detail of that, right? But it is the case that there are some differences. They have less to do with overall size and more to do with where you, more, you may see more complexity in one gender than the other. Sometimes that second finding Right, that idea that well, the brains—if the brain of fifty men looks different than the brain of fifty women—sometimes that's taken to assume that that is the way in which those fifty men and those fifty women came out of the womb. Right, so innateness <laughs> suggests that the reason why these things are different, right, is because it is genetic, right, mm -hmm. and that's where. Um, <clears throat> the former president of Harvard gets himself into trouble. There's at least as much evidence to suggest that your early environment mm -hmm. is responsible for the shape and the complexity of your brain. This comes up when you talk about gender differences. This comes up when you talk about race and ethnicity differences. This comes up when you talk about cultural differences, right? Mm -hmm. There is at least as much evidence to suggest if my brain looks different than your brain, it's as likely to be because of differences in our environment than it is to be about anything related to genes, right, mm -hmm. or early prenatal, perinatal hormone levels, right, which is often where people go when they see their, those differences. But yeah. there is really no evidence to suggest that that's where they came from. I mm -hmm. do hope that he has now been educated about that. <laughs> you just mentioned... Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're not in trouble, not yet. Okay, oh. <laughs> you just mentioned one of the last things you mentioned was hormones and yeah. how hormones yeah. are involved in those differences. Yes. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. So so I should say, with regard to gender differences, mm -hmm. yes. this is not my own work mostly, mm -hmm. so I've, I want to put that out first. Mm -hmm. But there was, there's been some beautiful work um, over the last now several decades looking, for example, at individuals that are undergoing transgendered hormone therapy mm -hmm. and looking at those individuals before therapy and after that therapy. Um, and often this is done when um, you're talking about somebody who is transforming from female 
to male in terms of identity. Um, and in that case, you would be giving them testosterone and related hormones. Mm -hmm. And often the argument that has been used to suggest that cognitive differences are related to hormones is if you take individuals before they have had testosterone, and you might think of as male-related hormones, you look at their cognitive functioning beforehand, you look at their cognitive functioning afterward. What's been reported in the literature is that increasing individuals' testosterone levels improves that 3D mental rotation that I was talking about. So sometimes that finding is used in the same way we were talking about with the former president of Harvard, right? I will not, no, okay, never mind, never mind. Um, so um, that, those two are often confused, right? Okay, the brains of women and the brains of men on average statistically are different. And look at that, if I put a male hormone into an individual, right, that individual may now have greater visuospatial skills. Right. But what you're doing is two entirely different things. One is taking a person usually much later in development mm -hmm. and adding testosterone to whatever their brain and body looks like currently. Right. The other is making a huge assu um, assumption based on what's going on neonatally, what's going on in um, individuals who are gendered as male or female and then are brought up in our very gendered society, right? right? So, so the idea that those, that one, that is increasing testosterone, even if we bought the premise that, right, the, the data is consistent, that that improves what you might think of as cognitive skills that men on average um, excel at, right? Mm -hmm. Thinking that that then explains the other, that is the sex difference, the gender difference, just scientifically doesn't make sense. It, that's sort of a good example of the fact that when it comes to cognition, we're always looking for simple answers. That's exactly and right. And the brain is always giving us very, very complicated that's answers. That's exactly that right. True? That's absolutely right. And I would say, um, so what often happens though, and, and we all understand this, is, is that when you try to give the shorthand, when you try to move from the scientific literature and the complexity and the nuance that's in right the the research we do when you try to bring that into a public square mm -hmm. which is really important right mm -hmm. that that communication needs to occur mm -hmm. but how do you communicate right out to <laughs> most of us who are not experts in any particular field right that particular field and do so in a way that doesn't that isn't so simplified that it's now entirely inaccurate Right, and that's a real problem in As terms of. As a former of, journalist, I've oh, probably yes, been guilty true, of some huh? time that's, in the Yeah, past. I'm sure we all have. I'm sure we all have. Absolutely. <laughs> You've um, also studied uh, stress and their reaction and stress reaction in children. Mm -hmm. How do children react to stress, and how is it different to? Do we adults? Yes. So, so again, mostly I'm going to go back to other people's work. Um, so we've done some work, and this work was um, in collaboration with Jesse Borelli, um, who is now at UC Irvine, and, and other colleagues here like Patricia Smiley. Um, we've done some work, and that one, that work is sort of complicated because the work that we did in children, it wasn't just looking at their stress reactions, mm -hmm. but it was specifically looking at how individuals bond with their primary caregiver mm. and then how those bonds affected 
their stress reactions. Okay. And similar to the work I talked about earlier, though, with gender, again, what we found there was there were different reactions to little boys versus little girls in their reaction to stress, dependent on how closely tied, how how functionally tied mm -hmm. to their primary caregiver, which in most of these cases were women, mm -hmm. they were. Mm -hmm. So it's a it was a complicated story that we have never looked at in adults. Mm -hmm. So I can't give you sort of an mm -hmm. easy parallel. Mm -hmm. What I can say though is I think there's some really interesting questions about. Um, having early life experiences and how much those early life experiences, if you have great trauma in your early life, how those experiences continue to impact you, continue to affect the way in which you respond to stressors later okay. on. Mm -hmm. So I would say maybe that's a parallel, is that both in children and even watching children as they grow and move into adulthood. In both cases, there's evidence to suggest that your stress response has a lot to do with the environment in which you find yourself, both in terms of your early life environment, mm -hmm. but even into college and into early adulthood. So that's what I would say is uh, parallel mm -hmm. between those two lines of work. And how early do, staying on children, uh -huh. interesting, how early do they uh, experience stress? And how, early, how, how how would you measure that? How would you know uh, yes. that? Yes. So uh, also a, a great question. Um, the, there are a couple of measures. So this might be surprising that one can do in early, even infancy. Mm -hmm. um, so um, one is actually the parallel to what we do with college students here, which is that we can put electrodes on the scalp of infants and look at brain activity mm -hmm. uh, within the, uh, certainly the first couple of months. It's the same method that we use, just smaller caps, just smaller mm -hmm. electric caps than what we use in college students. Mm -hmm. So there are ways and there are markers of individuals who react, individual infants, individual college students, individual older adults who respond to sour tastes on their tongue, for example. Mm -hmm. So we often will use that because that's something you can use across those different populations. And you'll see gender differences between the reactions to sort of negative stimuli. Um, you will see differences based on, again, sort of early life experiences or even stressful delivery experiences, things like that. So there are ways both neurologically, mm -hmm. right, to sort of look at the same measure at different points in time. Mm -hmm. And there are also ways hormonally, right? So when I test my stress levels, hormonal stress levels like cortisol in college students, I'm using salivary samples. They just spit into a test tube. So if you can get your baby to spit into a test tube or otherwise give me some spit, I can analyze the same I'll give hormones. you a bib. You, that's what I assume would be, and I'll just squeeze it out into my test tube. Actually, that would work. Um, but, but in one way or another, so it's interesting and maybe surprising that some of the same measures that you would use in college students or adults, mm -hmm. you can actually use in infants as well. And that's really nice because then you know, as we were talking about earlier, there's so many measures of stress, you want to make sure that you're getting a consistent measure across right. time or individuals. And, and yes, babies show stress responses nearly immediately. Probably not even nearly immediately, but certainly prenatal at that, the last couple of months um, prenatal. Wow. We mentioned that journalists... Um, 
<laughs> like me, uh-huh, absolutely. Um, have a tendency to want to to oversimplify mm-hmm. um, science. They also have a tendency to to um, to insist on applications. Yes. So I'm going to ask. Oh, of course. Uh, your, oh, of course. Your, your work is in pure research. Yep. I mean, it's yep. it's it's not aimed at specific applications, yep. but are there applications down yeah. the line for the work yes. you're doing? You so, think? yes, there no question in my mind. And, and let me say, um, even though you're absolutely right, some people would think about at least some of the work I do as pure science, basic research, basically, as opposed to applied or clinical or, or um, translational research. The reason I can be so excited about it and that's just me as a scientist, is because I see such a clear application. So I'll give you one example of that. Um, One of the things I'm really interested in, and this goes back to how individuals differ in the way in which they respond to stress. Mm -hmm. So you can think about an extreme case would be um, individuals who are returning from combat um, and with post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, we often talk about, right, we often talk about the number of veterans who return right, with some form of brain damage um, and relatedly, I will say, and we're understanding the complication here more and more, of PTSD. But it might surprise people to know about 10% of veterans return with PTSD who are males and about 20% of veterans who re- returned from um, combat are um, female, so th- that have PTSD. So let me put that ag- again. Mm-hmm. So about 10% of veterans who return from um, military service who are males will wind up with PTSD, and about 20% of females who return from as veterans will get PTSD. Mm-hmm. Some in, There are two things that are interesting there. One is the gender difference, and that's something I'm very interested in. But the other is that those numbers are probably much lower than many of us think about. It mm-hmm. turns out even if I control for the trauma that you experienced, you would still see that it's not the majority of individuals who experience trauma who wind up coming back with PTSD. So one of the things I'm really interested in is trying to understand what is it about particular individuals that put them at a higher or lower Mm. risk of experiencing, right, Mm -hmm. a traumatic outcome. PTSD is one example, given what look like fairly equivalent, right, levels of, of stress, of trauma, of stressor, Right. And so there I again go back to is it about early life experiences? Is it about differences between men and women in terms of um, support while they're in the military, other trauma that they may experience in the military? So I'm really very interested in these questions of how is it that different individuals experience what we think of as relatively equivalent events in very different ways? Mm-hmm. I think the only way we get an answer to that is turning to the brain and yeah. understanding how the brain reacts in the ways that it reacts. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you were interested in psychology early on. Absolutely. And then you were, you know, you brought into the light of neuropsychology. Uh-huh. <laughs> so now with your understanding of the mind and the brain, how yeah. does that feed back into the understanding of yourself? Oh, so, oh. So yeah, you, are you? So do you, do you like, oh, that, 
I just experienced a high level All, of cortisol yes, right there. Yes, no, there's no question. There's no question. So, so I love that question because uh, right at this moment uh, and for the last six months, I have been faithfully doing yoga and practicing mindfulness meditation. And so uh, one, I guess I got into this work because I so identified with the stress response and sort of all of the outcomes, good, bad, and indifferent of a stress response. And over time, what that's led me to think about is, okay, now I I feel like I get this. I feel like I understand why I experience Mm -hmm. the negative things often that I experience when I'm stressed. So now I've gotten really interested (laughs) in like, so what do I do about it, right? (laughs) So now I would say I I have a newfound respect for stress. And what that gives me is also a new found motivation to mm-hmm. understand how to diminish it, right? And when to diminish it. And to try not to stress about the things that may be stressful, but may also be positive and arousing, but to be very thoughtful about how can I change my hormonal levels that are related to stress. How can I change my brain? And so in another chapter of my life, which is in front of me, I'm I'm sort of moving my research Mm -hmm. from looking at the stress response to looking at management of stress through meditation, through yoga. And there are really excellent, again, um, studies to suggest that in the same way that stress can alter our brains, so can stress management. So that's actually, I'm so glad you asked that question. So I I do, I really try to incorporate, that's Ah. it. I try to incorporate what I learn in my research, what I learn and um, teach my students into how I try to live my life. So now I'll ask you to offer some advice (laughs) (laughs) Um, out of your research, but also out of your own experience. All of us are trying to manage our stress levels. Absolutely. It's one of the more important things we do. No, there's no question. There's no question. Um, And I do think, I think um, there are a lot of different strategies that work. So this idea of eating well, exercising regularly, Sleeping, what's optimal for you, which is almost always somewhere between six and 10 hours. Good luck. I apologize, new mothers. Um, All of that. And then what are the things that work for you? I I do think that much of, I mean, this is sort of Buddhist in many ways, but much of our negative um, stress response, if you want to put it that way, is less about the stressor and more about the way in which we react or better respond to that stressor. So trying to see what's out of my hands, because there's so many things out of my hands, but what's also in my hands. So Garrison Keillor once said, in the shower, it's not uh, the fall that hurts you. It's what you do to try to to stop the fall the fall. That's exactly right. In in Buddhism, they would say, it's not the arrow. It's it's the second arrow that you create for yourselves, (laughs) right? Right? So it's not the thing. It's it's the reaction to the thing. And that's why zebras don't get ulcers. They tend not to react in the way. Channel is a zebra. That's all I'm saying. Channel a zebra. Make that your spirit animal. I love the old line from Elliot, teach me to care and not to care. Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. 
Too funny. Um, so where is your, so we talked about yes. a little bit about where your research is, is yeah. going now. And yeah. Have you just started or where are you in yes. that, in that so, process so of as, as stress many management? Of you, mm-hmm. Yes. So as many of you know, I am um, just at the end of three years in administration as one of the associate deans and diversity officer for the faculty. So on some of you might say I haven't even started stress management yet, <laughs> um, but I have a sabbatical in front of me. Um, and during that sabbatical, I plan both to practice more stress management, but also in, in all seriousness, to think about what does it mean to incorporate? What does it mean to move my research from trying to understand sort of the res- the reaction, the response to stress, to really trying to think about what we can do, and especially our students. I mean, that's one of the things I like about the fact that my students are also my participants in these studies mm-hmm. is really working with the population that I love and teach, right, and thinking for them, what would it mean to manage your stress in healthier ways? And to be able to show them and show myself, it's not just that you think you feel better, right? It's not just that you psychologically have the experience of feeling better, But there's evidence through brain activity and through hormonal levels and through immune functioning to suggest you are better. That's exactly right, at least in women. Um, Let's turn to your teaching. Oh, yeah. Let's segue. Um, What are the advantages of teaching neuroscience in a liberal arts setting? Oh, yeah, I love that question. Um, So, so. I'm not sure I knew exactly. I knew I wanted to be at a liberal arts school. I knew that that my passion was really about teaching and mentoring. I'm not sure when I got here, which is now 21 years ago. Remember? I know. I remember. We came in together. Um, I'm not sure when I came here, I really thought about, like, what's the advantage of being here with regard to my research? Mm -hmm. I think I really thought about what's the advantage of being here in terms of teaching and mentoring. But what I found is... Being at a liberal arts college seems to me the ideal place to study neuroscience because if you really take seriously the notion that most neuroscientists work with, the idea that anything you feel, anything you think, anything, any way in which you behave has to be about, right, the neurons in the brain, has to be about the brain, then what that means is that I can ask questions that are legal questions or political questions, or philosophical questions, or or um, or studio art-related questions, and ask every sort of liberal arts, what does it mean to be human? For me, that has to, at, at some point, involve the brain. And so what I don't think I really thought through, honestly, when I came here, was how much being in a liberal arts college, being in this setting, would make me want to and and require me to push my students to think about neuroscience, neuropsychology from the perspective of literature and religious studies and women's studies and right and mm-hmm. and that hadn't I hadn't it hadn't even occurred to me but doing it for this long I really realized like oh this just also happens to be the ideal place to to do my my research yeah absolutely absolutely Nicole, you're known for your enthusiastic energy, <laughs> and you're a four-time recipient of the oh, WEG Award for yes. Excellence in Teaching. Yeah. How do you do it? How do you keep your students engaged in your courses? Oh, um, 
well, I do yoga in class, <laughs> and I, I have been known to jump on my desk and uh, things like that. Um, I have answered a student's cell phone um, before in the middle of class because that seemed only appropriate. So, so I, I think, I think, honestly, I think it's because I'm excited, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's because I love what I teach, mm-hmm. and I love the, the, the practice the practice of, of teaching and learning. Um, and I feel like I'm always doing both of those. <coughs> and so I hope that I serve as a good model for our students in terms of both um, loving the topic and, and thinking like, oh, if you don't love it, you just don't know it. I got to teach it to you, right? But <laughs> also really like I'm always learning. I want you to always be learning. I want you to know why I'm so excited to tell you about this and share it with you. Mm-hmm. So I hope that's why. I hope that's why. Yeah. Some of the concepts in neuroscience are kind of hard to wrap the brain yeah. around because yes. it's wrapping the brain yes. around well, itself. Your brain, right, exactly. Uh, for instance, <laughs> cognitive deficits. Yes. I, I, I think of Oliver Sacks' book, yes. uh, The Man Who Man Mistook His Wife for yeah, a Hat. One of my favorite books. <laughs> one of my favorite books. What do deficits like that have to teach us, and how do you approach things like that mm, with students? Yeah. Um, so, so for, well, first of all, that's one of the books that, that got me into um, being interested in neuroscience, and I read it during that class that I was I was talking about. So, I, I, there's something about the narrative. There's something about understanding what are the implications of having damage to this part of the brain. What are the implications about not being able to remember? anything from more than two years back. What would the, how would that change your identity? What would that, how, would you have an identity? If you wouldn't have an identity, what's identity? All those <laughs> sorts of questions that, that I think um, deficit often teaches us, or we often teach from brain damage cases and things like that because they're sort of mar- marvelously interesting, especially <laughs> if Oliver Sacks is the one writing about them. But I would, I would answer it in a different way as well, right? So those narratives of what does it actually look like when, I think are really cool and, and students love them. But I also am very careful, very careful when I talk about deficit to, to in the same way we were talking about stress, and I was saying people often think about it in a negative way, but stress can be gloriously um, um, uh, energy producing, right? I think about deficit in the same way. Many of the individuals, many of the groups that we think about as being deficient in something are also highly, super capable functional in other ways. So I, I constantly, I think, both in terms of thinking about, you know, what we would traditionally think about as deficit is saying, now, have we just not found what sort of the superhero characteristic <laughs> is of people who would have this, right? Mm-hmm. I try to think about that in terms of when I talk about brain damage or any sort of cognitive, what we think of as deficit is you sort of, what's the strength here? I try to do that with myself. I try to do that with my students, right? So even as I, I sort of use brain damage cases, for example, but, but partly as an example of we're only talking about one side of the coin. There's another side of the coin here. We may have not explored that yet. And mm-hmm. let's remind ourselves of that either way. And so that's, I'm very sort of conscientious, conscientious about the way in which I talk about deficits and really trying to get my students, get myself 
to to realize that's almost always just one side of the coin. Well, and that's sort of the wonder of the brain, isn't it? That, Absolutely. That it is so plastic and Absolutely. so so able to surprise you in, in ways that 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 you wouldn't expect. That's exactly um, right. And I'll I'll often say when students ask me at what point does the brain stop changing, stop growing, the day it stops learning, right? We learn throughout our lives, we change throughout our lives, and that that is the evidence that the brain is constantly changing and exactly as you said, is constantly surprising us. So what happens when the brain stops learning? <laughs> I think you die. <laughs> so my recommendation is that you keep your brain learning every day, that you are here at the colleges, and from that point on, for the rest of your life. Good plug. I like it. <laughs> Nicole, in your 21 years mm -hmm. at Pomona, what have been some of your favorite courses to teach? Oh, um, so so two favorite courses, and they're sort of at opposite ends of students' college career. The first one, intro psych. And I think partly... I, we, I started the story talking about that's what turned me on to the sciences that I thought I was not so interested and engaged in. So there's something really exciting to me about getting students as early in their college career as possible <laughs> and trying to convince them, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be your travel agent. I'll sometimes say, through the mind. And in, in the course of our travel, you're going to meet the brain if you haven't met it yet, and you're going to fall in love, right? So I love, I love getting students at the beginning and saying, oh, I'm going to teach you the coolest thing ever. <laughs> and then I love getting students at the end. Um, I teach, so I teach an intro psych course. I teach a few other courses. But the most senior level course I teach is called the Biological Basis of Psychopathology. And one of the things I love about that course is the whole idea is think of things you think of as psychological, specifically with regard to psychopathology, depression, schizophrenia, manic depressive disease, aggressiveness, and violence. And let me convince you that all those are, are disorders or right changes in the body above the neck as opposed to below the neck. And that's the only difference between those things that we're going to talk about and diabetes and gout and what have you. And I really love being able to sort of, for me, I feel like teaching those two classes along with the other classes I teach sort of allow me to see the entire sort of progression um, of, of a student's four years and their experience in psychology and neuroscience. So those are my two favorite courses. And yeah, I like, I like both ends. I like both ends. Do yeah. you find that your research feeds back into the classroom? There's no question. There's no question. So, so in both of those classes, as well as every class I teach, I do, I, I give myself the privilege of doing at least a week and talking about my own work. Um, and I think that's really groovy for the, they don't say groovy, but that's okay. Um, for the <laughs> students, because I think they get to see like, not only do I teach it, but I do it. And I ask these questions myself, that this mm -hmm. isn't just some dry, here, read this article. Like, I wrote this article. Let me tell you why I thought that was an, an interesting um, set of studies to run. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I think it enlivens my work um, in terms of research and also enlivens the way I teach. You mentioned you're at the end of your three-year as associate dean. I, I am. And focused on diversity yes, uh, that's right. initiatives. Can you that's tell right. us more about that? Absolutely. So, so my main initiative has been um, thinking about the parallel 
In terms of diversity, so demographics, equity, creating, right, um, similar conditions, and inclusion, bringing people together. So diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, thinking about where we are with regard to the student body. So as we all love to brag about, we are, if not the most diverse, certainly one of the top couple of most diverse elite liberal arts colleges in the country. Um, we maintain that for the student body, and I expect us to. Um, but we have not done as well with regard to the demographic diversity, especially race and ethnicity, but also gender, with regard to the faculty and with regard to staff at all levels. Um, and so I've been really interested in thinking about what does it mean to have a diverse campus? Not just be able to talk about you know one part of it, and we constantly brag about one part of it as we should, but okay, what does that mean to make it institutional college-wide? What does it mean to do that? And also, what does it mean to go beyond the numbers, right, across mm -hmm. populations, whether you're talking about students, staff, or faculty, and think about creating a place where we all sit down together and learn. We all sit down together and debate. We all sit down together. Um, and so that's the thing I've been most proud of is uh, diversifying the faculty. Um, in, in the last three years, um, we have made considerable gains um, in terms of bringing in young scholars who are also young scholars of color and more young scholars who are women. And I, that's my, that is my proudest accomplishment in the time that I've been in the office, for sure. Um, there's also sort of the question of diversity in the STEM fields and in Absolutely. neuroscience in particular. I know you've written a little bit about that. Absolutely. About that? Absolutely. Um, and actually the, that piece that I wrote is called something like we know the problem. Uh, why, why don't we move to solutions? So I, I, um, am concerned um, that we've known for a long time. Neuroscience would just be an example of this, but the issue with regard to inequities um, in um, college um, are probably greatest in the STEM fields, in science, techno technology, um, and uh, engineering and math is actually what um, STEM is for. Um, so, so we've known for quite some time that black and Latino students are more likely to leave the sciences um, than our white students, or also in most cases our Asian students. And so um, the fact that we keep reporting that, and yet many places have not done much to sort of move that needle, um, is something that I have also been fighting for and, and had been frustrated about for some time as a teacher, as a professor. Um, the, the thing that I've been doing the last three years related to that is working with Travis Brown on the cohort programs, on Posse and other cohort programs, QuestBridge, um, to really encourage students of color who are interested in the sciences to be supported in the sciences. And so, um, so that's been my work. One is sort of trying to be a voice out there saying, what do we do? To stop telling me about the statistics. We know about the statistics. How do we move those statistics? Um, and then also trying to get my hands in there and, and doing the work. And again, that would be the second thing I'm most proud of is that we have moved the needle considerably in terms of the number of black and Latino um, students who say they're interested in STEM fields when they get here and who wind up graduating in the STEM fields.
Well, on that note, we're going to wrap this up. Okay. Our thanks to uh, um, neuroscience and psychology professor Nicole Weeks for talking with us about her academic journey into the human brain. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Nicole. And to all who've stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Until next time.